This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles and their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyers Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Hello, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. I'm off for a swim so that all is good with the world. Fantastic. That's very good news. Because it's not very long until the big summer swimming season starts and I have not done enough. <laughs> well, I'm counting down the days until I finish work for the year and I won't be swimming. I'm just going to be writing and finishing my doctorate. Hey, and next Wednesday, I've got a meeting in Auckland. And do you know what happens on Thursday? Total coincidence. What? The America's Cup sailing starts. Oh. <laughs> so I've changed my flights. I'm staying over. Cool. And who are we introducing today? Today it is my absolute honour. Well, first of all, I'll give you some context. So we have um, just recently uh, interviewed Tony Boynton and we've interviewed a few other people who have talked about um, the Māori wards. And as you know, I've been to Wellington last week and we delivered our petition to the Minister and Tamati and it's been amazing but there's one person who has been the wind beneath our wings and that's Andrew Judd and he um, brought attention to this in a way that that no one else has and has posted every single day for 200 and something how many how many posts is it now Andrew? Oh it's two and a half years two and a half years every day to bring awareness to this issue and here we are talking to you tonight and Andrew I tell you I'm uh, I stood on the steps of the parliament so thankful for you and what you've done and the commitment you've made to bring awareness to something that is important for my children and my grandchildren and I'm just I think you're amazing and thank you welcome well, well, kia ora for that, and I guess firstly, thank you for the opportunity to share such a dynamic duo and everything that you've been doing over, obviously, post-COVID and during COVID and lockdowns and just a, a snapshot of what's happening in um, our country and, and with us as the people that, that live here. So thank you for the opportunity to, to join you. Welcome, Andrew. How was your bubble life? How was your, your lockdown? Well, I know before we came on, you asked me to sort of think about that and you sort of cast your mind back in so many ways, it seems like a lifetime ago, yet actually it's it's quite close in other ways as well. So look, 
my wife's a nurse and so we had a case here in Taranaki so we decided early on that my wife would self-isolate at, at my business practice in town and um, we've got two teenage children so my duty became mum, dad, mentor, entertainer, peacemaker, um, it was quite, uh, it seems a very sexist thing to say but I have to be honest and say I never realised how lucky my life was and how much my wife actually did, <laughs> all the cooking and the cleaning and the organizing the kids and getting dinners ready and oh gosh but it was it's i guess for all of us it was a, a insane it was a kind of a special bonding time with, with, uh, with all of us really because we got to know each other in a whole new way and that's uh will remain so even with it the long hair and the arguments and the laughs and the frustration and the fear the uncertainty has bonded us in a, in a deeper way i think that's so you know you could look for the positive as well as the you know, the fact you are locked down and things and coming through it all. I've been such a junior and so proud of our, our leadership and our, our Prime Minister. I know that's, we hear this a lot because it's so true. I mean, it's just felt safe and secure. And um, yeah, I think it's in a lot of ways brought us closer in a certain way. Are the kids old enough that you didn't have to also be a teacher? Uh, they mock me. They were long past my educational level. So our daughter, she's finished at university, and our son is seventeen. But he knew more than me at twelve. So uh, it was quite funny, really. And he, my son, my son felt the most aggrieved to be because he felt he was paying the bigger price because of no sport, no end of his social. He's, he's year thirteen now, and um, we had a lot of debates around a lot of uh, political decisions that were going on at the time because it meant. We had to challenge each other around was it the right decision? And he felt like he was trapped and they'd gone too far and all this stuff. And uh, my daughter, of course, had the opposite view. And Jacinda's doing a fantastic job and she's keeping us safe. So it was really the dynamic was, was great. Oh, I just, yeah, it was interesting. It's fun, isn't it, when they get old enough to have discussions for which you don't know the answers? That's a good point. So not only that, so we've got the two children, and if I was to put them into political parties, for want of a better phrase, my son would be ACT and my our daughter would be left of Labour. And so we we had some really great uh, conversations where I literally I had to say, look, we just, for the sake of it, we have to walk away from each other because there's just no, whether it's their true feeling and their children, they're finding out their way. And, uh, the, the experience that they watched with Dad, I guess, going through the political journey is challenge them in their own right and so that's a good positive thing I think is hopefully they become good human beings that contribute to society. And were you working during lockdown? No, no, so that's how my wife was, she, she carried on as she was a nurse and so um, I work in optometry, I did a, a few urgent repairs for frontline staff so that um, was, was rewarding in itself really and so I went down to the you know, optometry practice and fixed some glasses and uh, dispensed some contact lenses through the door, open the door, shut the door and but uh, no, just uh, living the experience of teenagers. You're lucky you didn't have to actually get up close to people because you have to get real close to people, don't you, to look at people's eyes? Well, in optometry, so I'm a dispensing optician, so I can't actually test eyes. It's, we have optometrists in our practice that do that. So my, my skill set of such is to repair glasses and to, to dispense glasses from a prescription. But yes, we were out of action as such for eight weeks in total for that reason, you you know, it wasn't until we got to level two, I think it was, where we could test eyes. So, the the like everybody, the, the challenge extended a little bit past the actual lockdown period. But we've bounced back. I mean, it's, I, I feel very positive. I, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty still, of course. But I think coming through that time, as I was touched on in the recent election, we're, I think 
things are looking good. We're not without challenge, but life's never without challenge. And you were the mayor of New Plymouth. Is that, is that right? That's right. So I did uh, nine years on New Plymouth District Council. I did uh, two terms as a councillor and one term as, as mayor. That's, that's right. Very, very privileged to get to that position in your community. Very special opportunity to uh, to lead your community, to be active and, and be a voice. And how's New Plymouth doing? Uh, so mixed results. So no surprises where the, they t- we talk about the black gold and the white gold, and the black gold is turned for the oil and gas, and the white gold being daring. So, um, you know, recent announcements of transitioning out of uh, fossil fuels into green areas has caused perhaps anxiety, but also opportunity. And so I think there's a positive vibe in our town. I mean, like most towns or cities in New Zealand, there is aspects like tourism that is suffering a bit more else. But I think there's a good vibe. I think post-COVID, again, we've, we've we had a chance to look at ourselves, who we are, and reflect. And, you know, this question of Māori ward and representation is, is alive and well again here in New Plymouth because... Um, just get straight to that. We've come back round again from my time as mayor for the review to be, or the decision or t- discussion around a Māori Ward seat has come back, and the council, the new council, voted to follow us and establish the seat. So I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of our council and our community because, unlike the first time six years ago, the the noise as such or the angst and the anxiety seems to have dissipated somewhat. To, um, mm, it's going to be interesting. So. It's a it's an ongoing journey because it always will be. Relationships are ongoing, and we're finding our way. It's I think after all these years of being in a treaty based relationship, we'd be far further down that road. But it's okay in that we have to do these challenges. We have to have these conversations. So, yeah, it's great. I want to come back and talk about the Maori Awards, but first let's take some music. Let's have Bob Marley, One Love. Why this one? Oh, this has always resonated with me, One Love. It just sort of sums up, I guess, in a lot of ways, my view of life around coming together and, you know, even regardless of our differences, we have to share something which is the love and the love of humanity of each other. Children 
got to go to Wellington last week to celebrate Maori Wards and she in the intro to to this conversation was thanking you for that why was she doing that I guess what to I, I guess highlighting so in my time as mayor this question of Maori representation i.e Maori Wards was the first real challenge I had as a mayor and I in my time reflected and twofold to that I reflected on my own personal journey of coming to terms with my inherent ignorance and racism to to Māori and to all things historical New Zealand. You know, here I found myself the mayor of a district and I had no idea of, it, of the happenings that had occurred to Māori in any way, shape or form. I, I had no education around that, but I, what was, I was nearly 15 when I was elected. And I couldn't in all consciousness blame my education system for that. I'd never as an adult taken any energy or time or inclination to even go above to look, learn, and so, so in becoming the mayor, and you don't have to be a elected person, of course, to go down this journey as such, but I, I challenged myself around what does representation for Māori and us as a treaty partnership the country look like, how does, and should that work, and the other aspect, of course, was the option of Māori Ward, which um, opened my eyes to a systematic system, that, or a system that really fair to say is racist in its nature towards Māori and geared up to make the voice of Māori in any real way unachievable. And I just, I don't know, something touched me on this experience to make me say, you know, for this point in time in my life, albeit Plymouth, albeit, I mean, I'm just, I'm just a local, you know, local politician, an optician, but I had a chance to say, you know what, this is wrong. We're Pākehā to Pākehā, we are broken. We're the problem. Even the whole process of Māori ward has been created and designed by Pākehā. And who gets the kicking and has the hard road to utilise the option? And who gets all bent out of shape when we want to use that option? And um, it became more about the reaction to the Māori ward seat than the Māori ward seat itself. And in a lot of ways it always has been. What I'm really saying back to Pākehā is we have to have some tough, hard conversations with each other in that Māori can't fix what's broken. We've been trying well before the Andrew does it, though. This is since Cook arrived, I would tend to say. And I wasn't, if you think of it, I wasn't actually saying or doing anything new. Māori have been saying this for years. And so even in the sense that all of a sudden I had a, um, some ears of people, because what? Because I'm Pākehā? So even that in itself shows how broken we, we kind of are. And we have to find a way. We've got to find a way to cut through this real hard stuff. And that takes, you know, a lot of people have done a lot of things well before me and just alluded to, a lot of great people have continued it. And so the petition that we saw in Wellington, I mean, just, I just talking to tears because I'm just so proud that people have continued to stand up for justice and inclusion. 
And I'd also add, if I can, then that all we're really asking, all that's been asked, is that we make the process equal. No one's saying anyone should be given anything, and you'll hear all the rhetoric around and the kickbacks and all that. And I just say to people, really, if, take some time to go and actually find out what Māori awards mean, why it's important to us all. And it's not the it's not the destination by any stretch. It's even it's, not even, it's just the beginning of the beginning. It's just to make the process of establishing a seat the same as any other seat that we can create. And so I think, you know, I was very touched by the introduction. But for me, it's well, I'm just, you know, I, I, I liken it to, if we're moving a big mountain to change things, we, if we're moving a stone at a time, I just simply moved a stone. You know, there's been lots of people doing it, and it'll continue, but hopefully what we're starting to see is some daylight by having moved that mountain somewhat. Because you were willing to move a stone, so were a lot of other non-Māori. They were willing to pick up the stone and move it too. And that, I think, has been the extraordinary thing that I've observed after an entire life of um, being impacted by my genetics, by my name, by all of those things, and at times feeling incredibly isolated and victimised and uh, like a second-class citizen, Mm. All of a sudden, the people who have, who who collectively have represented all of those negative things, picked up a stone, yeah. and that has blown me away. And and when I when I actually look back at the start of that and the movement that you really inspired, that blows me away. It absolutely does because we've been trying for generations to get that movement. And it mm. took one person with the right language and the right approach and the courage to 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 start that movement and work with us. And now we're all on that journey. And thank you for that. Oh, look, that's very that's very touching, and I, 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 it means a lot actually. And so, but I just and I thank you. I really do thank you because, but it's for me, you know, there's so much more I have to do, and that is the journey from Māori Wood for me has become. Um, Pākehā to Pākehā, and I hope this makes sense. We really, even the Māori would see, this needs to go a lot deeper into our psyche and around who we are. And we, you know, we think things like stuff that's come out, and I congratulate the, the, the stand they've taken. But it's easy, a bit like Māori would, to say or think that I've done that, we're, we're there, when when we're nowhere near there. And so my call is to, to other Pākehā, people that are in positions of power. So I was in a position of power, albeit a mayor, but I, I was... I had done nothing special to get that job other than being born Pākehā, to be honest. And I had all the privileges that had come my way through systems that allowed me to get somewhere so, so much easier. And there's a lot of people like that in New Zealand still to this day who might say certain things, but I need to see action from these people and real action to really break down systemic racism through everywhere, through every aspect of, of our society in New Zealand. Um, and it's going to be, look, this isn't easy stuff. We know this, right? And so no, no more so than for Māori. Because I mean, one of the things I often thought and say is, you know, how privileged again am I? I can walk away from this. I, I don't wake up Māori. I mean, I can just get on with my life, get back to optometry and nothing, you know, life's still this sweet for me. But once you see something in life, you, can, you have two choices. You can ignore it or you do something about it. And you don't have to be an elected person to move a stone. What was it? Was there a particular moment where you thought, "I'm going to do something about this," or was it was it building yeah. up over a while, or, or or can you put your finger on it? 
So no, I can put my finger on it. And then, so when I was when I was elected to the mayoral town, as I say, I was almost fifty. I'm a New Zealander, and then I was born in Masterton. I've never lived anywhere, any other country. I had never been on a marae in my life. I'd never engaged in the Māori world in any way, shape, or form. Never had an occasion to, never occurred to me to do anything. Of course, becoming the mayor, I found myself having to go to, or having to invited to, um, Oa Marae and Waipara, because it's Maui Po Māori Day. And I had no idea what Parihaka was. I thought it was a hippie commune for outdoor concerts around the coast. Um, I was to do a small pipiha introduction. But to answer your question directly, on that marae, something talked to me and told me to pick up that inner mirror, take a look and take ownership of what you see. Because once you've done that, Mr. Mayor, you then have some work to do. And I know you know what it is. Because actually that reflection was an ignorant, racist, Pākehā man. That house told, I could feel it calling to me, the, the walls, the roof, the carvings, the people, the wayata, the emotion and the room was screaming at me that I had, I had a job to do. And so people can park that however they want, whether it was a utopia moment or you know, whatever, that's the truth of it. And from that day on, things unfolded and I've never looked back. And I say to people, look, I realised on that moment actually I'm a Pākehā. I was gifted a place in New Zealand by our ancestors. And as such, I'm a partner, I'm a treaty partner, te tiriti partner to Māori What a privilege that is. But with that privilege, Mr Judd, comes an obligation to actually be a treaty partner, to step up and do better. And um, it's been, I feel free. I mean, I, I don't take pride or joy in going around saying I'm a recovering racist, but it's the truth. Because I was raised by that in my country to hold certain opinions towards Māori and systems that are around me that support that thought process. And so once I realised that, once I saw that, I've never looked back. The thing though, and you may relate, is how do you do it in a way, because it's a fine line between radical and relevant. And throughout this journey as Pākehā, you know, you get pockets of a whole range of emotions from people from embracing and tears, whatever, to outright anger and attacks and just rage. But, you know, I've got to be honest, I identify with the rage. I identify with the, the fear and the... And the I spent all my life feeling like that and saying that. Now, if only you can get to that person's heart to say, you know what, if you can get through that fear, if you can challenge yourself, what you'll find is just beautiful. It's amazing. And that is actually our treaty partnership, the love and the culture of Māori that's always been there around us. I was just raised to not see it or feel it. And uh, I say, park it how you like, because actually it doesn't matter. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care whether you're breathing or not, because at the end of the day, what matters actually is what's in your own heart and the questions you've asked of yourself. Have you bothered to learn history? Have you bothered to empathise and understand? Or have you just reacted off the cuff of a certain anger and rage? Only you can answer that, not being judged. It it's irrelevant at the end of the day. It matters what you think and how you behave. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou ko tahuahau. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. And I really hope that wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining 
I'm illuminating for you more and more each day who you are. A triumph of nature's art. Perfect. Unique. And here, making things better. Thank you. So as we know, beautiful people, we've shared this incredible collective emotional roller coaster together. We've had grueling times together. We've had moments of revelation and elation and joy and a sense of great release and relaxation together. We've had times of frustration and anger and suffering and pain. The whole gamut of human emotion has been run through collectively together this year. How wonderful. What an incredible phenomenal experience to experience together. How absolutely life-changing for us all. And of course I've been very grateful to have these five minutes each day with you to talk with you about this. Thank you so much for having me. So at this time, I'm sure for all of us, it is a very busy time as we head towards the end of 2020 and we gather together and we celebrate together and we have some time away from our daily routines. We have some time with our whanau and our friends celebrating our freedom once more, frolicking about in the sun. And of course, celebrating those holidays, the Christmas and New Year that mark these times, these rituals for us all societally. So very interesting, very exciting time. I am absolutely flat out at the moment. And when I say that, of course, I speak with deep gratitude and deep excitement for all these wonderful opportunities that are coming my way but also with a sense of just having to continue and continue to make things happen and bring forward an energy of presence and an energy of engagement perhaps without the same level of depth as if I had less things happening all at once but still the ability to continue. And I'm sure that we're all in this state at the moment. We're juggling a million, billion things. And something, of course, that occurred to me in the process of sending out all of these intentions for success into the universe is that it's really quite exciting. And how wonderful that we have our consciousness so that we can really treat our day-to-day as a bit of an exciting treasure hunt and a bit of an exciting puzzle and a bit of an exciting game and at times when we need to we can take a bit of a step back emotionally and instead of engaging in a sense of feeling overwhelmed and stressed and exhausted and that everything's too much we can instead reframe and we can decide how exciting it is to have only a limited amount of time several billion things to achieve in that limited amount of time and how can we cleverly fit everything together like time tetris so that we can get all our wonderful exciting adventures achieved and this is what's happening for me today i have multiple events i have multiple bird feeders to set up I have more than 100 beautiful small children to teach with amazing Leslie wife of amazing Sam. And I have multiple locations to travel between. So for me, 
I'm so grateful for our consciousness as a species that I'm able to reframe this situation and it's become, instead of a stressful, overwhelming time, it's become a very exciting adventure, time Tetris game. So at the moment I'm heading back to Mata 10 where I've been since 7am this morning setting up bird feeders and I am then going to collect an amazing whale scientist, take her out to Orokanui, and I will then return to Maritain having finished my teaching to paint many beautiful young faces and perhaps some slightly older faces as well, you never know, and also create bird feeders from wire and pom-poms and fruit. So it's going to be very exciting. So I really hope for you at this very, very busy time, you're able to enjoy reframing and recalibrating in terms of an exciting time Tetris adventure. And I really hope that you're feeling a great sense of achievement and accomplishment. And I'll look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Andrew Judd. Did you see it and do you see it as a a blame and a beating yourself up or it, it sounds to me as though there's there's that's more empowering than that oh look i went through a whole range of challenges internal conversations when the question of the world came to my office i mean i was a politician a mayor first term mayor the, the power to ignore this to take your time to take the people with you you know do little things put in a committee or you know, have an extra kumatu at a meeting and all the tokenistic vibes and the draw and the challenge of don't blame me. I I didn't do anything wrong. I'm a good person, aren't I? And everywhere I landed in those inner thoughts and challenges to myself was, well, really, would you say that if it was your voice, Andrew? Who are you the mayor for? Just that majority. Who are you as a, as a human being, as a, as a, a parent, a husband, a, a businessman, a, a community member? How are you going to shape yourself when you look back on your life and your end days as to what you did or didn't do? Why was it so easy to turn a blind eye? The privilege that comes with this, and it just unraveled. And man, what do you do? How do you take on pretty much yourself? People don't realise how difficult it is to be Māori and be elected to any role in council. And I remember uh, my friend Ian Finch and I stood for the DHB together. We stood on a ticket for the specific to the Eastern Bay. And Ian's an Englishman, have about the same level of education, both got a master's degree. Um, we uh, he, he was working full time, so I was doing a lot of the work and designing all of our stuff and writing our policies and all the rest of it. And, and we did everything together. Now, he didn't tell me this till after the election, but he had so many people come up to him and say, why are you standing with that Maori woman? And why why would you, you know, I would never vote for someone like her, not voting for some Maori and things like that. And he was so offended by that. And he said he spent so much of his time defending me. But what upset him most was that people thought he was the kind of guy they could say something like that too and that it was okay. And he, he said he would never have believed we had a racism issue here in the Eastern Bay until that experience, and it makes him so sad. And mm. so um, he, an Englishman, got 8,000 votes and I got 4,000 votes. 
and he and to this day we were just talking about it on the phone the other day he was so shocked by that but people don't get that they don't understand they think it's a level playing field and that you know that being Māori doesn't make any difference but yeah it, and it's kind of it's sad that people think that so for me I part of that challenge within myself was um I've, I had to realise that I've not only been racist and, and, um, and privileged, I've never been a minority in New Zealand. I have no idea how that would feel. And uh, yet I would, without any moral in a conversation to myself, felt I had some right to pass a judgment onto a different people, a culture, and a, a judgment and an expectation or whatever that might be, you know, like get over it, we're all the same, et cetera. But I've never had to live that. And it's quite a barrier, I think, for people to get over. But you've got to get over it to find the freedom. And this whole, from what you've just said, I mean, it breaks my heart. And that's really what I'm trying to start, get to the, the nub of. Because even having a Māori world seat, as I laid out, that's not, you know, you can't legislate love. You can't legislate getting people to challenge themselves. You can't, you've got to get people to challenge themselves. And they need to see it in themselves. And so that's that's all I did. All I, I mean, I'm not a, you know, an academic brain stretch. I'm not a, just a, I'm just a dispensing optician that got into a council and then and found myself in the in the mayoralty. And to, just to be the mayoralty, when I look back, because my slogan actually at the time was let's bring honesty back to local politics. And the narrative behind that was just a complete conversation to myself in that. And that was about we're not being honest about rates. We've got an aging population. We can't afford rate increases. Our infrastructure is not being spent on properly. We're not being honest about ourselves. Man, I didn't know that I'd get challenged about actually what honesty in local politics actually means in terms of our country, in terms of Māoridom, in terms of our racism and, and, and our broken systems. And so you've highlighted absolutely um, a place that, um, and I only speak for me, because I can't speak for Pākehā, of course, I don't speak on behalf of Pākehā. I speak as a Pākehā, and I reflect on myself and say, because I was raised, we're raised, to, we've normalised the way we react to Māori. And we just cannot see how broken we are and how, how sad it is for us and to be selfish again. Because if we can fix that, and only we can challenge ourselves on that, through that pain is absolute glory. Because if we truly bound ourselves as treaty partners, which was promised from the get-go, we would be an amazing, unstoppable country. And to get there, we need to break down all of what we said, all of those structures to the core. And I'm looking for the new leadership with a lot of hope and, and you know, <laughs> I am one to poke. I do know that because you just got to run. You've got to keep the feet to the fire, as they say. Um, because I'll be, <laughs> I feel sorry for the, the government I'm talking about. They're going to get pushed every day on because so many promises that people want. But, you know, we really need some strong, tough things to be said within each other. Pākehā to Pākehā. As I say, Māori can't be in that space because we know that to be true because all I'd said was what Māori have been saying since Cook arrived. But here I am, a Pākehā male mayor, and all of a sudden, oh, you're, you've done this, you've done that. I oh, know. I just saw it. I just saw something that I can now no longer unsee. And I feel blessed, actually, as hard as it can be for everybody. And, and it's an ongoing journey. I'm a recovering racist. Uh, people might say, oh, surely you've recovered now. No, there are things that are said in the media or something I might read or see that trigger straight back to that feeling. You know, because it's almost in my, I would say, my DNA. From the womb, I was taught to be and react a certain way towards the body. And going to that place is as natural as anything. 
And when you're in the office of mayoralty or if you're elected in that position, there's another human dynamic, and that is, I want to stay here. Because actually, this is quite nice. I get a big office, I get chains, I've got a secretary, I've got a big boardroom table in my office there, and people listen when you talk. It's quite intoxicating. I don't want to do something that's going to, you know, <laughs> take that away. Um, mm, Māori wards, Māori representation, I don't know. What's that could go away? <laughs>
That is Roxy Music Avalon. Andrew, we've seen lots of changes over the last almost year. What do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? I think just in hearing some of the news feeds coming out around the, the, the report from Christchurch, I think a lot of the change that we're going to get from that will stick. Um, I hope it sticks because it underpins um, racism, not just Māori, but you know, and a lot of racism in New Zealand. So um, I say hopefully that it will stick. I just think the new laws around hate speech is going to be an interesting challenge for all of us. But we need to have that conversation. I know that it comes back to what I was saying before, because if we don't, then it just it's, it just lies there and un, debated. And from different views, it's been like I remember they talked about my children, that left and right debate. We actually ended up, because we are one family, we, we are the sum of all those parts, but you've got to land somewhere where there is always love and respect and tolerance of each other. And unfortunately, we need some rules around that because we're human beings. And so what I want to stick is the strong, brave leadership of our, our new government. That love and tolerance does seem to be have been proven to be effective by the response to the pandemic. Do you think we can extend it wider to things like climate change or social inequity? Of course, we have to. This is just the tip of the... I mean, cliche to say, of course we do. We've been in a... I mean... We've had a society that has divided us through, I would say, greed and selfishness. And we, we know something's broken, but we can't, well, so we haven't been able to put our finger on it. It's why I would argue that Jacinda, as an example, was like a breath of fresh air, because finally somebody's talking about what it all, all about us. We all want to be loved. We all want to be healthy. We all want a dry, warm home. We all want a good education. We all want a safe environment and, and uh, safe and love each other. Of course we do. We're human beings. And there is no shame in standing up to say that that's what you believe in and that's what you aspire to have. Do you not do it for yourself within your own family? Why would you not want it for your neighbour, your brothers, your sisters? And people will say, oh, you're just part of that woke generation. Yes, I am. Of course I am. I'd rather be woke than asleep. (laughs) Andrew, it's, it's such a tricky thing like at the moment, I'm doing a lot of writing on empathy and the role that imagine, imagination plays in empathy. Like if, if our imaginations aren't stimulated and developed, we, it's highly unlikely that we will reach our full capacity of empathy or develop our true ability to be able to make in, um, choices, real choices in life. And so these are things that I think about all the time. And I see all this empathy pouring out where we we've made all of these social changes to protect each other from COVID but I I'm not seeing it when it comes to our racial issues in the country I I just I'm struggling with that yeah well true and I of course and so I can only speak for myself of course I can only speak for myself part of what changed me in terms of the space around with to do with Māori and empathy, you know, the question was posed, What was there one thing? There was a few other things. I, I was actually, I read a book called The Adventures of Kimball Bent. And if, if you don't know the story, please look it up. And it's, what fascinated me, this was a, a British, well, he was American, Native American, who joined the British Army and got posted to Taranaki and then flipped and, and went, he didn't like the British, uh, and went to be with the Māori. And 
he wrote his observations of the land wars and what was happening. But with all that I was reading, because he wasn't Māori, they didn't trust him with a gun, he was put with the women and children as the British came in to attack the pa. And you know, in an instant, empathy came pouring into my heart, because all of a sudden it dawned on me. Of course Māori weren't professional soldiers, or you know, it wasn't soldier, British soldier, you know. These were people, children, grandparents, people who had been crippled, running fearful for their lives into the bush. And I parked that emotion with how I thought of World War II and my family and what the endeavours that they went through and the, and the shelters and the fear that they would have had. I could empathise with that and I wasn't there. Why could I not empathise with Māori Why can't we empathise? We got to a stage in our country where we've lost the ability to care and love for each other. I mean, it wasn't that long ago in my lifetime we'd do things like telephone. And we'd be proud about how much we all raise for each other and care for each other. We'd do to do more for each other. But now we look at it and it's me, me, me. I want mine. If you couldn't get your house, I don't care. Well, then we wonder why we're broken and we talk about stress and the It's us. We haven't. What's wrong with us? We're human beings. We need to have different conversations. And there is no shame in giving and caring for your fellow. And I call on those leaders to talk line, do that. Don't just say it, do it. That's where the empathy will follow. Because believe me, from my journey, I can't, there's just no price I can put on the love that I've gained from owning my racism and owning my ignorance. Um, it's true. I've got a lot of work to do. I've got a lot to learn because life is a journey. But if you've been honest enough to say, I didn't empathise, I didn't understand, it's okay. Go and find out. I have some questions to end the show with because the show does have to end, even though we could keep talking for hours, I am sure. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Uh, gosh, that's a great question. I think, I think seeing the team on the steps of Parliament last week, uh, seeing the media pick it up, the media picked it up, the work that everybody's been doing, it's finally got some traction. So the success in one aspect is that this is gaining momentum. People are talking about it. Changes on the horizon. Yeah, I guess that's that's the biggest success I can I can aspire to say. And um, the fact that I, I've continued, I, I think people are like sponges. They want we need to have these conversations. And so the success is that that is also gaining in momentum. So yeah. To try and find that truth, to find the way to empathy. So that's the shift in the voting just recently. I mean, I, I, we've all got our political leanings, of course we do. But to see such a swing, if people don't realise what they're, they're, we're thirsty for love, we're thirsty to care, we just need someone to redirect us. That's the success. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in our team. What is the superpower that's got you into our mansion? Oh, gee, oh, I don't, I, I don't know. I, all I can put it down to is like one love, love of the common people, strength and giving. It's not my superpower. That's a human superpower. That's the point. 
is that none of these mm. superpowers are ability to fly. They're all things that everybody mm. could have. That's right. It's all in all of us. We all bleed. We all hurt. We all want to be loved and included. We are basically the same. We've allowed certain things to divide us, and we need to challenge those things and remove them. Things like petitions to exclude Māori on Māori wards. Those are roadblocks. That that, that, that action, for me, shackles Pākehā to our colonising ways. To break that law is to free Pākehā, actually. So do you consider yourself to be an activist? I've got, I don't know. I don't know what I am. I don't know. Life, for me, I feel like a leaf floating down a river and I get snagged on a twig and then I carry on. I've got no plan. I've got no roadmap. I just take it as it comes. Whether that's activism or not, I don't know. I just, I'm, a, I'm just a person. I just, no, I'm nothing. I'm just nobody. I just saw something and can't unsee it. So what motivates you then? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, well, I am a dog with a bone with this because, as I say, that line between activist or irrelevant and I think fighting the truth, I just, I have a job to do. I was told that when I was in Hongwa Marae. There is a new direction for you, Andrew, and that'll be for the rest of your life. Whatever shape or form that takes, whether it's a conversation with you good people or a conversation with a neighbour or someone walking down the street or to a community hall, it doesn't matter. It's, it's speaking the truth as you see it. That's what motivates me. And what challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or so? Um, I guess if all things go through, and that is the changing of the legislation, the challenge will now be helping people that will reject that, helping people like myself find a pathway from that fear and anger to understanding, to empathy, love and inclusion. And so I think there's stormier weathers to come. I think some of the things the government is perhaps going to do is going to create deeper conversations, fear and anxiety, but it's okay. So my challenge is moving forward are to help. Because that's, I can't otherwise, I mean, when I see all that stuff, that's who I was. I'm only seeing myself. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Oh, I keep listening to you, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Look, I think any advice, you don't need it from Andrew Judd. We know what's right and wrong in our heart. And to always, if you can always step back from an initial reaction, take a breath, think about being in the that other person's shoes and know whatever whatever situation you're in and respond in kind and heart because there is more power and truth and love and light than initial angry response of words that you may regret because you can't take it back and so my advice to anybody is just put yourself in someone else's shoes thank you for that i'm aware of Andrew, uh, as we stood on the steps of Parliament and looked out to the crowd, there were more white faces than brown. And um, it was the most amazing feeling. And for me to be able to stand there next to my now 11-year-old son and share that moment with him because of something that you started um, that, that just inspired this beautiful change. But there aren't words for that. It's an amazing thing. And thank you for everything you've done. I oh, really yeah. just so much respect and so much honor. thank you 
Mm-hmm. Uh, love, and, love and peace to everybody. And just on that, we are the example to our children and what we do in our time makes the difference for them. And a lot of this is for them. So thank you. Thank you very much. That There is a song about Kimball Bench. Should we go out to that? Wow, that'd be great. Campbell Band was a sailing man Took the king's shilling, came to New Zealand Sent to Taranaki to quell unrest Fighting with the 57th Regiment Gave him 50 lashes and late one night But when the cat spoke, he took flight Campbell Band fled into the bush To join up with the Maori was his wish Taken by the ho-ho Wet and cold, they had a hooey round the new pole. Shall we just kill him or cut off his head or let him live with us instead? You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Chris Priestley, Kimball Bent. I'm Samuel Wan in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani and in New Plymouth, Andrew Judd. We hope you enjoyed the show. The Takawaru, he did fight, beat the British Army in all its might. At the birds, beat Manuel was shot. This made the government mighty hot. They chased him through the swamp and the forest too. Now, if they caught him, they knew what they'd do. 500 pounds for his head Offered by the New Zealand government Traitor and deserter, Kimball Ben If he gets caught, well, he'll be dead After many years in the wilderness The government finally lost interest For a short time, he moved to the city where he became a big celebrity was a fuck your Marty, but now he's gone and Kimball Bent's legend still lives on. He was a pocky Amari, but now he's gone. Kimball Bent's legend still lives on. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.